Well, it is really wonderful to see you all this morning. The, um, uh, although I've gotten very good at reading eyes. This is the first time that uh, I've had the opportunity to speak here. It's a little disconcerting. Uh, I miss the tiles. and uh, I'm going to imagine a bar in the back just to feel a little more at home. But as I thought about uh, what part of God's word I could direct our attention to this morning, it occurred to me that this passage from 1 Timothy is of profound significance for our particular time and place. We live in a time of intense partisanship, where a fractious spirit demands utter allegiance to party. This malady is made the more malicious when combined with the persuasion that the way I feel about things is the measure of my reality. Lost is the obligation to use the gifts of mind and heart to admit, to submit to what is, to what is real, to what is true, to what should prevail with me as well as with our community, as we labor for the common good. Today we turn to a text that remarkably focuses our attention on a most important corrective for the spirit of the age, setting forth an essential frame of mind for the good of the church and the glory of Christ in a fallen world. Look with me then, if you would, to the First, first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, I'll read for us a portion of the fifth chapter. Overall, Paul in this letter is giving Timothy instructions on how things ought to be ordered in the household of God. He's giving Timothy directions that will guide him in his work as a pastor. In this chapter, he has been giving instructions concerning Timothy's dealing with various categories of people in the church. At verse 17... Paul turns to the topic of the leadership and government of the church. I'll read from verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules, without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them into judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the word of God. Let us pray together. 
Father, we are grateful for these wholesome instructions and glad for Timothy's reception of them and for the way passed from one generation to another. These instructions have been fruitful in the building and guiding of your church and the formation of your people as disciples. And we pray that they would have that effect among us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, look back with me to verse 19. Paul is giving instructions concerning the discipline of elders. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Note that the outcome of a trial against an elder is not through immediate divine revelation, the way it appears to have been with Peter in Acts chapter 5. It's not through fiat, the raw exercise of authority. It is because I say it is. Rather, the outcome is on the basis of submission to the judges, to the facts of the case, the evidences of witnesses. This is the fruit of the Spirit-enabled use of reason, applying the Word of God to the facts at hand and drawing just conclusions. Verse 21, then, sets before us a solemn summation of Timothy's responsibility, intended to show how serious these matters are, how important that Timothy comply with faithfulness. Having said that unrepentant elders are to be rebuked in the presence of all, now Paul makes the point that this is not the only audience present. Verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. In the presence of God, I charge you. Here, Luke brings Timothy in his mind's eye to think of himself before the maker of the universe, its judge, to be in his very presence and to contemplate the character of that God. In Luke chapter 15, our Lord speaks. He said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the presence of God. Before the presence of God who knows the hearts of men. Peter has the same idea in mind in Acts 14, 19, 4, 9, 19, when he challenges the Sanhedrin in their unjust judgments. Whether it's right before the face of God, you judge. But you must listen to God rather than man. In the presence of Jesus Christ, I charge you. So Jesus taught concerning himself. In John 5, at verse 22, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is the truth that was preached by the apostles, that God has fixed a day, says Paul in Acts 17, 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul insisted in in 2 Corinthians 5 at 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. One day, says Paul in Romans, God will judge the secrets of all men by Christ Jesus. In the presence of God, in the presence of Christ Jesus, in the presence of the elect angels, I charge you. The angels, the mighty messengers of God, Think of Gabriel, who brought the good news. The elect angels, as opposed to the rebellious ones, who didn't take their place according to God's appointment, and so they were cast out in judgment. Peter reminds us, if God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, and committed them to change in gloomy darkness, so he knows how to bring judgment against all. These are the witnesses and agents of judgment in the time to come. The future witnesses of carelessness and rashness and self-seeking and bad faith, as Calvin puts it. So the angels will testify to what they have seen. And they will attend Christ when he comes in glory. The angels with him as he sits on his throne of judgment, Matthew 25. And they will be Christ's agents in that judgment, according to Matthew 13. He will send the angels, and he will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. It is this incredible, it is this awful setting that Timothy is to bring before his mind's eye when he acts in judgment. He's to keep these rules without prejudging, to decide a matter without the poison of preconceived judgment. He's to do nothing from partiality. Here a universal negative. No action is to be taken on the the basis of personal favoritism. These two terms are only used here in the New Testament. The former is known as a technical legal term by the second century, These warnings Paul brings forth as essential for the elders in their crucial work in the church. But perhaps you're going to say to yourself at this point, why is Pastor Coffin preaching a sermon to us? We're not elders. What have we got to do with this? What do I have to do with treating cases? It's true the eldership is the focus of our attention But recall, Paul instructs that this work is to be done in the presence of all, so that all may stand in fear. Now, this fear in context must be a wholesome thing, not a bad thing, as it very often is in Paul's letters, a wholesome thing. What will the congregation find fearful? They must be experiencing the awe attendant on seeing justice done. The wholesome fear that derives from realizing that if I violate the laws of Christ's kingdom, I too will be accountable before such justice. But note further, what is particularly important in the judicial 
context of just judges is that this is nothing more than a special and heightened insistence with respect to our regular duty in the treatment of others. Remember the diaconate was formed out of a fear of partiality in the treatment of the widows of the church. And a sense of living before God as accountable for one's decisions is a regular part of Paul's self-consciousness as a model for the churches. The apostles' every act was governed by his awareness of divine presence. So in Galatians 1.20, he can say, What I'm writing to you, I assure you before God, I am not lying. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, In truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And Paul is simply here living out the command that our Lord gave to all of his people in John 7.24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge righteous judgment. In fact, such judicial proceedings as portrayed in our text depend for their good effect on the people by their observation of it and sharing the principles that are being put into effect. Presbyterians have long understood this point. In the first form of government for the Presbyterian Church in this country, 1788, they articulated preliminary principles that would guide the government of the church. And one of the principles said this, since church discipline must be purely spiritual in its object, not attendant with any civil effects, that is to say, not in the use of force, it can derive no force whatever but from its own justice, the approbation of an impartial public, and the countenance and blessing of the great head of the church universal. You see, for church discipline to be of any use, it first must have the blessing of Christ himself. Second, it must be just in and of itself. And then thirdly, it must be seen to be just by the people of God. This must be so in any discipline that is spiritual, that is not using physical force. For the community that enforces must be morally persuaded of the justice of the matter. The effectiveness of church discipline for good is tied to a congregation that, as ever before the tribunal of heaven, loves to see what is just accomplished without prejudice or partiality. And thus I conclude this morning this general principle applicable to all of us. The Christian is called to treat others as in the presence of the righteous court in heaven without prejudice or partiality. The Christian is called to treat others as in the presence of the righteous court in heaven without prejudice or partiality. I want to look at this briefly in three parts and then follow with some words of application. The first, we're going to consider the cosmic context for the exercise of these habits of heart and mind. 
Then we're going to look at what it means to decide without prejudice, followed by what it means to decide without, without partiality. So, a closer look at the cosmic context for the exercise of these habits of heart and mind, the righteous court in heaven. This context is grounded in the very nature of God because the scripture sets forth that this is true of him as one of the principal marks of his character. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. He is great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and does not take a bribe. Here in all the gloriousness of God in view, this is the laser focus of his character. So too in our Old Testament lesson this morning. God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods, that is likely earthly rulers, whom God has providentially appointed but have abused their office. And he holds judgment. And the cry comes out, how long will you judge unjustly and show yourself partial to the wicked? God cannot tolerate such governors in this world. And the psalmist cries, arise, O God, and judge the earth. And inherit it. And grace disposes God's people to delight in and to desire to be like God in this respect. Particularly, this characteristic is seen as a special aspect of the revelation of God's grace in the gospel. So, Peter preaches in Acts chapter 10. We read there at verse 34. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Paul writes the same in Romans 2.11. God shows no partiality. And in Ephesians 6, the same point is made with respect to Jesus. Jesus himself revealed himself as the Son of God, Just with respect to this point in Luke 20 at verse 21. And his hearers understand that, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. And in this, we must be like Jesus. So Paul writes in Colossians 3 at verse 23, Whatever you do, Work hardly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, and the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. All this must create within us a profound sense of calling. Calvin put it this way in his commentary on 1 Timothy. Indeed, the man who is not shaken out of his carelessness and laziness by the thought that the government of the church is conducted under the eye of God and his angels must be worse than stupid and have a heart harder than stone. That's almost an understatement. Well, That's the cosmic context. 
within which we are called to act when we make judgments. Second, then, those who know and love this God act without prejudice. This is the one before whom the hidden motives of the heart will be revealed. There's no hiding prejudice. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, we read of the Lord who will come and bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, disclosing the purposes of the heart. Prejudice. What do we have in view? It's bias. It's prejudgment. It's judgment before the facts of the case are understood. To so act is to betray the calling of just judgment. The calling to discern altogether. For the very meaning of the act is to make a conclusion on the basis of evidence. To prejudge finally is not to judge at all. It is simply to enforce your own preferences and preconceptions. It is sheer willfulness. It is the most profound betrayal of our calling to judge righteous judgment. In a fallen world, temptations to prejudice abound. Prejudice with respect to race, nationality, religion, party spirit. But understand this. The calling to act without prejudice is aspirational. Nobody does this perfectly. But what happens in a culture where it's not an aspiration any longer? Where it's taken to be, in fact, what we ought to be about is sheer exercises of will to get my way. Prejudice is often rooted in its benign beginning in the misuse of one of the great powers of the mind. That is inductive generalizations. That's the ability, upon the observations of cases in the past, to anticipate what will be the case in the future. Because like causes have like effects. But for induction to be valid, there must be some intrinsic cause at work in those cases past something belonging to the very nature of the thing in each supposed case. It cannot be something extrinsic or circumstantial. As I say, prejudice in its most benign form is nothing other than the fallacy of hasty generalization. Imagine this. I go to a carnival over and over, to the sideshows, I'm a great shot, so I constantly win stuffed bears. I take my prize home to have my children play with it. Often the thing has started to fall apart before I even get it home. They're not prize bears given as prizes. Again and again this happens. And so I come to the conclusion that stuffed bears must be cheaply made and useless things. But you antique roadshows fans know better. I go into an antique shop. I find a bear, perhaps even looking somewhat outwardly worn. But it has an ear tag. It says Stife. 
pass it by because I've concluded from all my examinations of stuffed bears that this is worthless. I realize that what I could have paid $5 for was worth $5,000. Serious error to base all bears on sideshow bears. My generalization was worthless. It accounted only for the stuffed bears to be found in carnivals of the sort that I attended. I failed in my generalization because I didn't see the different possibilities. As I say, much of our innocent prejudice arises precisely here. But then, once it arises there, it becomes malicious when we determinatively hold on to those conclusions because they advance our cause in some way or another. The point is that any such claim must be liable to being overcome by the facts in a given case. Whatever our expectations may be, we have a duty to frame judgments according to the nature of the case, on the merits, concerning the particulars, the person at hand, things as they are. Prejudice is increased in us from a variety of sources. Haste, for example, impatience to settle a matter, a lack of moral seriousness, a sense of accountability of the task that I've undertaken, inattention due to laziness of mind or self-righteousness. My first impression must be correct. I couldn't be wrong. For the believer, to repudiate prejudice is not, thus a, not just a this-worldly virtue. It is grounded in the calling of faith. Here, mind and heart comply with God's creation and government. Instead of our own will, our own preconception as to how things should be. This is godly wisdom, Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. But this godly wisdom is embraced by gracious godliness. That's the heart of the Christian. What is needed? What is needed is a delight in getting the matter right than whatever may be the practical outcome. Proverbs 18.2 A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. A gracious humility before the real, which is nothing more than a humility before our creator who made things as they are. It means a determination to listen with care, with attentiveness, with reflection on what I've heard. It is a self-discipline of the mind. Proverbs 17.27 sets this before us. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and whoever has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. He has mastered himself. Thus prejudice. Now partiality. Those who know and love this God the God of the heavenly court, act without partiality.
Partiality, that is favoring or disfavoring a person's cause, not on its merits, but upon their status or relationship to me. The Old Testament background shows that this prohibition is profoundly important. First, hear Leviticus 19. You shall, do, you shall no, do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. So again, in Deuteronomy 16 at verse 18. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. What's that look like? You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For the bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of justice. To act with partiality is to blind yourself. Again, Deuteronomy. The judges in the first chapter are charged. Hear cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother and the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment, but rather you shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for judgment is the Lord's. And this is the mark of the godly king we see in Second Chronicles 19 concerning Jehoshaphat, but we'll pass over that. The sources of partiality, of course, I judge in favor of my loves instead of what is fairly seen to be due. Or I judge in some hope of advantage, reward. Bribe, favor. Overall, partiality is using other people as a means to my ends. Instead of me giving what is due, which is what justice is about, instead of me giving what is due, I take for the cause of my own benefit. How can we close our eyes to such personal considerations and distort judgment? As before for the believer, to repudiate partiality is not just a this-worldly virtue. It is grounded in the calling of faith. It is an indication that God is our Father. As this sonship is found in embracing our Father's ways. Psalm 62, 12. To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. It is God's deep love for the right that makes partiality impossible to him. And all of those who call God Father must follow. Here's Peter's witness in 1 Peter 1.17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear in the time of your exile. 
the calling of all believers, you show yourself children of a father by doing likewise. Because we trust that God has taken care of us, we are enabled to take care to do what is right. It is a mark of genuine faith in the Lord. Consider the bold declaration of James in chapter 2 at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Well, the Christian is called to treat others as in the presence of the righteous court of heaven without prejudice or partiality. For those of us who profess faith, first of all, let me apply this to the church more broadly in a striking quotation from John Calvin. He's got this text before him, and he says, Paul brought on this solemn appeal because this was a matter not only of the most serious importance but also the most extreme difficulty. There is nothing harder than to pronounce judgment with complete impartiality, so as to avoid showing undue favor, and in every case to consider nothing but the matter at hand. Only by closing our eyes to personal considerations can we reach an equitable judgment. Let us remember this warning to Timothy. Paul sets Timothy in God's presence that he may know that he should exercise his office with as much conscientious care as if he were doing it in the presence of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ and his angels. Let us be determined to pray that we would ever have such elders as this in this congregation, and that we would be such a congregation who prize such behavior on the part of their elders, as that there would be no place among us for prejudice and partiality. So, too, we must pray for this with respect to our presbytery, a presbytery meeting coming up next week. More importantly, we need to pray for us with respect to the General Assembly. The highest court of our church will be meeting at the end of June into July. I'll mention that later, but that should be one of the serious applications as we so pray regularly. We have to be grateful. Grateful for the judicial procedures in our denomination. And pray especially for the judges of our highest court, the Standing Judicial Commission. Remember the commitment that our church had from the beginning in 1788. Discipline can derive no force but from its own justice, the approbation of an impartial public, and the countenance and great blessing of the church. We should be heartened that those who serve us on the Standing Judicial Commission have to take this vow before the Lord. I will act as before God my judge the searcher of hearts. I will judge without respect to persons, and if so tempted, I will recuse myself from judgment. I will judge not according to appearances, but judge righteous judgment. And it continues on. 
Those must be affirmed before every case is decided by that court. But standards are one thing. Courageously living by them are another thing altogether. Particularly now, as our General Assembly approaches, we must pray for the Standing Judicial Commission because it is facing two cases of intense difficulty and that are profoundly significant for the life of our church. And furthermore, our assembly is meeting in St. Louis at the end of June into July. It'll be the largest assembly ever gathered of the PCA, which is shocking, a post-pandemic, in a post-pandemic year. It's the largest because there are controversies at play with respect to these two cases, and a host of the materials coming before the assembly, and there's going to be an enormous temptation for party spirit, for partiality, and for prejudice. And we need to pray that God has mercy on that assembly. As I say, it's facing an an overwhelming number of issues that are fraught with the possibility of divisiveness and party spirit. It's the 48th General Assembly. There are 48 overtures before that assembly, and there'll be three days to consider them. But see to the importance here of personal application. For this truth teaches us in general how corrupting the practice of listening to only those that we agree with. Profoundly corrupting that practice. Think of social media feeds and the cable news. This effectively means that we're willing to judge only by hearing one side of the story. Judging only in that light, and that's corrupting to heart and mind. It's not only damaging in itself, but it creates a habit of mind that is unhealthy because the conscience is dulled. On the contrary, we need to learn to be attentive, thoughtful, scrupulously fair in our treatment of others and willing to hear something that we disagree with it and weigh it carefully. We seek, we must seek to be not only those repudiating prejudice and partiality, but to be those who are seen publicly to repudiate prejudice and partiality. That it's evident to others. Now, let me just comment here tenderly. We are numbered in the popular mind among folk who are called evangelicals. And in our culture right now, I want to ask you, just according to the popular presentation, if you ask some of your friends at work, do you think one of the chief things about evangelicals is that they're impartial and act without prejudice? People would laugh at you today. That's the horror of our public uh, uh, image. I don't think it's a fair But it means we have been profoundly inattentive to one of the chief responsibilities we have in the church and in our culture. And it means there's some profound repair that needs to be done. 
consider the golden rule. This is how I want to be treated by others. I don't want to have have people acting toward me, prejudging my case, partial, and thus I should be willing to treat others. James 2.8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so we ought to examine ourselves. As I say, this is aspirational. Nobody does it perfectly, but it must be our aspiration. And we must labor, repenting when we fail and rising up again, newly committed to this way of life by God's grace. We should cry aloud to the Lord when we find that we've acted otherwise. God grant us repentant hearts. And in repentance then to let God's word by the spirit do its wholesome work in these matters. The word that is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This calling begins and continues with self-judgment. Judging yourself without prejudice or partiality. Thus Paul in Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, don't think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned Then thinking so of yourself, apply this calling to all of your relationships. Nurture this self-consciousness that I act toward others in the presence of God and Christ and the angels. And I must act without prejudice or impartiality. In your family, brothers and sisters in Christ, with friends. Especially any of you who have any kind of official capacity. It's doubly your responsibility. Parents, employers, those in government service, counselors. Note this in closing. There are two precious fruits of these virtues. One, the one who's seeking this habit of heart and mind will be granted boldness, for God will support it. In Galatians chapter 2 at verse 6, you see this at work. Paul says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows impartiality. I had to stand against them. You see that? There were those who seemed to be the big shots. And Paul, come lately, And he said, because I am convinced that God shows no partiality, it makes no difference to me. It enables me to be bold in the world for the cause of good courage in the court of God, our Savior, and in the angels. For if they are on your side, you need not fear any person. And the second precious fruit is that our witness is strengthened 
It should be the grudging self-consciousness of even the wicked. There is safety and justice for me if I am being dealt with by a believer in Jesus Christ. Because of their evident determination to act without prejudice or partiality. Overall, beloved, we must nurture a realizing sense of the presence of God in all our judgments, that we might keep this charge in his presence and that of Jesus Christ and the elect angels. This will bring either a sense of servile fear and shame to act unworthily. Look out, they're watching. Which is better than nothing, but of no real advantage because it will be finally abandoned because of the pain and guilt of sin. Or it will stir within us a deep sense of desire, an aspiration to act in a way worthy of such company, in love, to do your best before such an audience that God, that Christ, that the angels could rejoice that by his grace you are standing firm. Let it be the latter. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this word. It is a word that in our day-to-day activities may seem obscure to us. But we do pray that the seeds of your truth being deeply planted within us, that it would be thus transformative word, that we may grow to be more and more like Christ, to be like you, our Heavenly Father, to be like you in this world. And to be blessed by you to do good in this world. And finally to be received into your presence and hear your commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen.